As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before I get going with today's episode, I'd like to thank my newest Patreon supporters, Sarit and Courtney. As many of you may know, this has been a bit of a stressful week for those of us who depend on Patreon for keeping our projects going, and so your support is very much appreciated, as is that of all my other brilliant patrons. If you'd like to join the Queen's Council and see what we have coming up in the new year, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. As you will know, this is the final episode on Mary of Modena, the last queen that I will be covering on this podcast. There will be at least one episode, though, coming in the new year as a kind of summary and wrap party for all those of you who have made it with me to the end. So, if you're new to the show, you are so very welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 67, Mary of Modena, The Queen Over the Water. History is written by the victors, and nowhere is this clearer than in the Glorious Revolution. What began as a group of recalcitrant English nobles requesting that a foreign prince come and take over their country became a story of how a kingdom threw off the yoke of absolutism, oppression and tyranny and obtained a new kind of monarchy, one imbued with the values that future generations would all cherish, that of constitutional government, civil rights and, above all, Protestantism. But while there is merit to some of this, it is also rampant exaggeration, concocted to justify an armed coup. The man who had Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
we're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lead this coup and launch arguably the first successful military invasion of England since 1066 was William of Orange, the husband of James's eldest daughter, Mary. He had made it very clear from Holland that he disapproved of James's controversial policies, the Declaration of Indulgence, the Trial of the Seven, and so on. He set himself up to be the champion of Protestant England and used his wife as a kind of figurehead. So when Mary of Modena gave birth to Prince James... Orangists were able to paint the warming pan baby controversy as part of a Catholic plot to deny Princess Mary the crown that was to be rightfully hers. In September 1688, William announced his intention to invade in the aptly named Declaration of Reasons. As part of it, he listed all of the reasons that you might expect, including a nice long section on the warming pan baby controversy. Quote, but to crown all, there are great and violent presumptions inducing us to believe that those evil counsellors, in order to their carrying on their ill designs and to the gaining to themselves more time for effecting the same, for the encouraging of their accomplices and for the discouraging all good subjects, have published that the Queen hath brought forth a son, though there have appeared both during the Queen's pretended bigness and in the manner in which the birth was managed, so many just and visible grounds of suspicion, that not only have we ourselves, but all the good subjects of these kingdoms do vehemently suspect that the pretended Prince of Wales was not born by the Queen, and it is notoriously known to all the world that many both doubted of the Queen's bigness and of the birth of the child, and yet there was not any one thing done to satisfy them or put an end to their doubts." Realising too late the seriousness of the situation, James II scrambled this way and that to try and raise support for the defence of the crown. Now most of these don't really concern us, but one of his weirder moves was to try belatedly to deal with the part of William's accusations that I just read to you, that of the warming pan baby. In late October, as William was preparing to load his troops onto the invasion fleet, James called an extraordinary session of the Privy Council where there were present over 70 nobles, clergymen, and other assorted important people. These included members of the King's Party, but also sceptics and some opponents. Its purpose was to try and settle the dispute once and for all, and claw back the moral high ground. One person who was not there was Mary of Modena herself, 
it would not be right for her to be present while such accusations were being thrown about. Those present heard 41 testimonies, and it started with this statement from the king. Quote, My lords, I have called you together upon a very extraordinary occasion, but extraordinary diseases must have extraordinary remedies. The malicious endeavours of my enemies have so poisoned the minds of some of my subjects that by the reports I have from all hands, I have reason to believe that very many do not think this son, with which God has blessed me to be mine, but a supposed child. But I may say that, by particular providence, scarce any prince was ever born where there were so many persons present. I have taken this time to have the matter heard and examined here, expecting that the Prince of Orange, with the first easterly wind, will invade this kingdom. And as I have often ventured my life for the nation before I came to the crown, so I think myself more obliged to do the same now I am king, and do intend to go in person against him, whereby I may be exposed to accidents, and therefore I thought it necessary to have this now done, in order to satisfy the minds of my subjects, and to prevent this kingdom's being engaged in blood and confusion after my death. The first witness was our old friend Catherine of Braganza. Her deposition read, quote, That when the king sent for her to the queen's labour, she came as soon as she could, and never stirred from her until she was delivered of the Prince of Wales. Short but sweet there from the Queen Dowager. I'm not going to read all the depositions out loud to you. I spent a lot of time in the last episode reading out Princess Mary's questions, and these repeat much the same information, but more repetitively and at greater length. I put a link to it all in the show notes if you'd like to have a look for yourselves. After all these depositions were made, James stood up again and said, quote, And now, my lords, although I did not question that every person here present was satisfied before in this matter, yet by what you have heard you will be better able to satisfy others. Besides, if I and the Queen could be thought so wicked as to endeavour to impose a child upon the nation, you see how impossible it would have been, neither could I myself have been imposed upon, having constantly been with the Queen during her being with child, and the whole time of her labour. And there is no one of you but will easily believe me, who have suffered so much for conscience' sake, incapable of so great a villainy to the prejudice of my own children." And I thank God that those that know me, know me well, that it is my principle to do as I would be done by, for that is the law and the prophets. And I would rather die a thousand deaths than do the least wrong to any of my children. If any of my lords think it necessary, the queen should be sent for. It shall be done. But no one seemed keen to call for Mary, and so she was spared that humiliation. Despite James's words about how confident he was that he had not only convinced everyone in the room, but they would now go off and preach to the unconverted, this all made very little difference. William landed in my mother's ancestral home of Torbay in Devon in November 1688. James marched out west with an army to fight him, and, in a move that will instantly make you recall some of our Norman queens, left his wife in charge back in London. Indeed, to call back to another era of great queens, the Wars of the Roses, James knew that he was approaching his greatest battle, a Bosworth or Stoke moment, where he would either defeat the challenger and save his crown, or be defeated, deposed, and possibly killed. If the worst was to happen, then Mary was tasked with protecting their son and ensuring that he would successfully succeed his father. But it was all in vain. James placed his army at a defensible position at Salisbury, but he was hopelessly outnumbered. Both of his daughters opposed him, along with most of the nobility, and the army marching his way outnumbered him almost three to one. 
His men began to slip away. They had no intention of dying in a lost cause. Along with his soldiers, James's will to fight and health also began to desert. He left his men, the ones tasked with defending his crown, and fled back to London. On the 10th of December, Mary took Prince James and fled to France, disguised as a laundry woman, with only a few attendants accompanying her. She landed at Boulogne, and then moved on to a palace near Paris, where she met Louis XIV again, the man who had been so instrumental in making her queen in the first place. He greeted her warmly, and granted her the use of a place very familiar to us, Saint-Germain-en-Laye, the former haunt of Henrietta Maria. It was to be her home for the rest of her life. Her husband soon joined her there. He too had been forced to flee from London as his rule collapsed around him, and watched helplessly from France as the English Parliament debated what was to be done. In the end, it was decided that James had abdicated to the throne when he had fled, and so could be replaced. His daughter and her husband were to be crowned together as Queen Mary II and William III, ruling jointly as co-monarchs regnant, the first time this had happened since Henry II had ruled with his namesake son back in the 12th century. This was the second Stuart exile, though of course in this case a member of the House of Stuart still sat on the throne. In the first period, that of Charles II, Henrietta Maria had moved hell and high water to try and win back the throne, even when her son had wished that he would just stop. But that was because Henrietta Maria was without a husband. James was determined to fight this his own way, and Mary had little the experience and foreign connections that Henrietta Maria had. But that would not stop her from doing her damnedest to support her husband and son. She was a quick learner and a skilled diplomat, as we will soon see. James, though, had to lead the military side of things. He still had considerable support in the two areas of the three kingdoms that contained zealous Catholic support for him, the Scottish Highlands and Ireland. These supporters were called Jacobites, or supporters of James, which is a name I'll be using for the rest of this episode. They referred to James and Mary as the king and queen over the water. Now, I'm going to deal with what happens with James first all now, so that when we talk about what Mary is up to, we have a bit of context. On the advice of Louis XIV and with French money and troops, James led an invasion of Ireland, where he quickly gained the support of the Irish Parliament, which voted him further money and men. His army quickly grew and was a formidable multinational force, which, after a few short months, controlled almost all of Ireland, bar Western Ulster in the northeast. James, at this crucial juncture, failed though to press home his victory, and so did not manage to win control of the whole island before William launched a counterattack. James's siege of Derry slash Londonderry, depends on who you talk to, was lifted by the Royal Navy, and then in the climactic Battle of the Boyne, he suffered a decisive defeat and fled once more back to France, leaving his Irish supporters to their fate, something that to this day they were really pissed off about. At the same time as all of this was going on, there was an uprising in Scotland, started in Dundee of all places, but largely backed by men from the Highlands and Islands. They won the wonderfully named Battle of Killiecrankie, but once news of the defeat at the Boyne and the flight of James came in, all the impetus seeped out of the rebellion. It was finally ended after the brutal massacre at Glencoe in 1692. So what was Mary doing while all this was going on? Well, she had two roles, really. The first, we've talked about already, to raise and protect her son. But she had the additional duty of promoting the Stuart cause in France. Louis XIV had no particular love of James, certainly not personally, as he tended to come across very badly to nigh on everyone he met. 
For example, this is what Mary's sister, the Duchess of Orléans, had to say about him. Quote, The more one sees of this king, the more favourably one feels towards the Prince of Orange. To tell the truth, our dear King James is good and honest, but the silliest man I have ever seen in my life. Even the Catholic clergy were not impressed by him. The Archbishop of Rams said of him, disparagingly, quote, There goes a very good man. He has renounced three kingdoms for a mass. But despite all of this, diplomatically, it was advantageous for France to try and sow as much discord in England as possible. William of Orange was a long-standing enemy, and the Anglo-Dutch alliance, sealed by his coronation as king, presented a grave strategic threat to Louis. That is why he took in the exiled Stuarts and supplied James with men and money for his expedition to Ireland. But, as I said, this support was purely self-interested and could be withdrawn at any time. Therefore, it was important for Mary, the far more likeable of the royal couple, to act as his brand ambassador at Versailles. And she made a far better impression. One French courtier wrote, quote, People talk of nothing but the Queen of England. She appears thin and with large dark eyes that have wept much, a lovely complexion, rather pale, a large mouth, good teeth, a beautiful figure, and much wit. All this combines to make a very pleasing personality. Louis himself said, quote, That is what a queen should be like. She had a very good relationship with the Sun King and became the central figure of the court in exile while James was away, assuming a far greater role than she had while in England. This, sadly, was not enough to get James the support he needed while in Ireland. According to one of Louis's advisers, quote, The king has spoken to the Queen of England in the strongest possible terms about the confusion in Ireland, and goes on to detail how upset he was at how badly it had all been bollocked up. This was, of course, terrible news, but it is fascinating to see that it was to Mary that he said this, not some male advisor. She truly was the leader of this court in exile. As for her other role, that of bringing up Prince James, we actually have some evidence of what was going on here, from a Jacobite noblewoman who critiqued her parenting methods in a letter to her brother. Quote, The royal prince is in the best of health and grows more beautiful every day. Nevertheless, I am probably alone in feeling distress at the way he is being cared for, so different from our ways. I suggest many things to the Queen's ear, and I see the effect of this sometimes, but at other times she silences me by telling me that thus this is done to all babies. Despite this lady's complaints, it seems that James had a very happy upbringing, and Mary deserves much credit for that. In terms of education, though, when he got a little older, responsibility for that was seized upon by his father, who appointed tutors and even wrote him a book on good governance, which, if James had any sense, he would have thrown in the bin. If the birth of Prince James had been considered a miracle, then lightning struck twice in late 1691, as Mary fell pregnant again shortly after her husband had returned from Ireland. She had been eager to give birth again and had taken the waters at Forge, a place which, like Bath, was supposed to aid fertility. This was important for a couple of reasons. The first is that it could help cement James's legacy. There was no guarantee that Prince James would survive into adulthood, as none of Mary's other children had. Plus, with James's daughters Mary and Anne now enemies of their father, he essentially only had one child left. Doubling that number could only help. But there was also a second reason. One of the central arguments behind the warming pan baby theory was that Mary of Modena couldn't have any more children. Having another child could help persuade others for whom the whole controversy was the main reason why they had backed the revolution. And we can see this from the invitation that was sent to noblewomen across England, including Queen Mary II, to come to France and witness the birth. 
Quote, Whereas our royal predecessors used to call such of their privy council as could conveniently be had to present at the labour of their queens and witnesses to the birth of their children, and whereas we have followed their example at the birth of our dearest son, James, Prince of Wales, that even that precaution was not enough to hinder us from the malicious aspersions of such as were resolved to deprive us of our royal right, our dearest consort, the Queen, being big and drawing near her time, we have thought fit to require such of our privy councillors possibly can come to attend us here at Saint-Germain to be witnesses of our said dearest consort, the Queen, her labour. We do therefore hereby signify our royal pleasure to you, that you may use all possible means to come with what convenient haste you can, the Queen looking about the middle of May next, and that you may have no scruple on our side. Our dearest brother, the most Christian king, has given his consent to promise you, as we hereby do, that you shall have leave to come, and the Queen's labour over, to return with safety. Though the iniquity of the times, the tyranny of strangers, and a misled party of our own subjects have brought us under a necessity of using this unusual way, yet we hope it will convince the world of the truth and candour of our proceedings. Sadly, despite this rather grand-sounding invitation to witness a woman painfully expel a child from her birth canal, only three nobles tried to take Mary up on the offer, and all were prevented from leaving England. This, though, does show, once again, just how important the warming pan controversy was to all that was happening here. In June 1690, after a very short labour, and in front of many witnesses, including the Protestant wife of the Danish ambassador, Mary gave birth to a daughter, Louisa. She was a healthy baby girl, but James and Mary had hoped that her birth might lead to a resurgence in support for the Jacobite cause. If so, they were to be disappointed. That said, the court in exile was seeing a fairly steady trickle of supporters coming over from England. Those that came, though, were largely relative nobodies and relied on the charity of James and Mary to support them. Mary lived fairly frugally and ran the books well, but there were just too many mouths to feed, and the court ran into arrears. Mary did everything that she could to raise more money to pay these debts, and raise money for James's various invasion attempts. Much of her money and property had been seized by the new regimes in England, meaning that she had to look elsewhere for funds. She implored her brother, the Duke of Modena, to send her way the remaining instalments of her dowry, but without success. She was also selling some of her jewels to clear the debt, but also supported the émigrés in other ways. For example... Her letters to the French clergy saw many of the children of these exiles enrolled in schools and convents, and orphans were supported by many dioceses, meaning that they were moved away from Saint-Germain and off into French cathedral towns. This was good for them, but it was also good for Mary, as it meant that she no longer had to pay for them. James was pretty useless in this endeavour. He'll go off for weeks at a time to live with monks, and so Mary had to take on a number of roles that were normally under his purview, such as court appointments, and making sure that the right people in the French court were kept sweet. Her husband's uselessness was shown again in 1694, when Mary's brother, the Duke of Modena, died with no children. This left Mary, as his only surviving sibling, as a strong claimant to the Duchy of Modena, and, if that could be secured, would be a tremendous boon to the Jacobite cause. It would end their money troubles and bring a great deal more prestige to their effort to regain the English throne. But... Her uncle, Cardinal Rinaldo, had other ideas, and quickly moved to seize the duchy for himself. Mary urged her husband to go to Italy and fight for her inheritance, but James displayed his typical lethargy and did nothing. Rinaldo managed to secure the duchy, and secured his support for William of Orange, ending any hope of Mary's dowry money coming over to Saint-Germain. 
Mary's importance to the Jacobite cause is also shown by some of the vitriol sent over from England to damn her name. They used that time-honoured tactic of discrediting women. They accused her of being sexually loose and unfaithful to her husband. There was a stream of pamphlets circulating around England and France churned out by Dutch printing presses that were patronised by King William. These included publications such as the pithily titled The Old Bastard, Protector of the New, or The Prostitution of the Queen for the Procreation of the Prince of Wales in 1692, where she was accused of sleeping with her octogenarian prince, or The Court of Saint-Germain or The Gallant Intrigues of the King of Queen of England during their time in France, which basically accused her of running a highly immoral court. This was utter crap, of course. Mary and James were prudish people, and their court was a far more disciplined place than the one in England. The death of Mary II in 1694 was celebrated by the Jacobites heartily, and it was hoped that, now with William ruling alone, this was a great chance to win back the Three Kingdoms. But nothing really came of it but a few failed assassination plots. James made another attempt to invade in 1696 by calling upon all his supporters in England to rise up in rebellion, whereupon he would invade with an army from France supplied by his patron, Louis XIV. But his supporters in England, wary of being hung out to dry like the Irish had been, had no intention of rising up until the invasion came. But James wouldn't commit unless they rose up first. This circular argument predictably led to no invasion at all. This humiliation was the last straw for Louis, who tried to foist James upon the Poles by making him their king when their throne became vacant. But after he refused that, Louis cut him off. This was made official in the Treaty of Ryswick in 1697, which saw peace between England and France. The court in exile would remain in France with Louis' support, but he would no longer be providing troops. Jacobite hopes for a French-backed invasion in England were killed at the stroke of a pen. For the next few years, Mary became one of the ringleaders of a faction at the French court that pushed for a resumption of war with England. This period in history has become called by many historians the Second Hundred Years' War, so called because it lasted 126 years, from the outbreak of the War of the League of Augsburg in 1689 to the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. But this was one of the many periods within that century, and a bit, where the two kingdoms were at peace. The only hope for a Jacobite restoration was with a foreign-backed invasion, and that could only happen if war was declared. Louis, though, was determined to plot a middle course for the moment. The English ambassador to Versailles noted that the French, quote, are civil to us and hate us, and they are civil to King James and despise him. As usual, James was little help for Mary in this endeavour. But on this occasion, he at least had a decent excuse. He was dying. In 1701, just as England and France were about to go to war again, this time over the Spanish succession, a war that I briefly talked about in the last episode on Catherine of Braganza, James died after suffering a stroke. He was buried at the Church of the English Benedictines in Paris, so if you'd like to visit it, then I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed, as it was exhumed, displayed, and then disposed of by the Jacobin revolutionary French government during the Reign of Terror. He and Mary had been married for 28 years, and though they had gotten off to a tough start, it had been a successful and loving union. After his death, she retreated for a while to Henrietta Maria's former haunt, the convent at Shiloh, where James's heart was buried. One member of the court in exile wrote, quote, there was never a more perfect and more Christian union than that which subsisted between the king and queen, which for many years had been their mutual consolation. So there was never a more bitter sorrow than was felt by her. Her job as a wife was over. It was now time for her to become a full-time champion for her son, 
who has immediately proclaimed King James III of England and James VIII of Scotland. Her first task in that regard was to answer a plea from the Duke of Hamilton, who offered to lead a Jacobite rising in Scotland if Mary would send her 13-year-old son over as well. This she astutely refused to do, knowing there was a very good chance that he would be captured, and if that happened, that was the ball game. Hamilton also requested that he convert to Protestantism. King William was by now an old man and had never been that popular, while James was a young and dashing and exciting person. Really, it was only his religion that was holding him back. But Mary refused this as well. This reply was written in her name. Quote, She could never be the means of persuading her son to barter his hopes of heaven for a crown. Neither could she believe that any reliance could be placed by others on the promise of a prince who was willing to make such a sacrifice to his worldly interests, that her son, young as he was, would rather die than give up his religion. She was, though, conscious of the fact that her son would need to prove his name on the battlefield, and so when he reached the age of 18, she did request that Louis give him a commission in the French army, saying that it would, quote, be much to his honour and reputation. Over the next few years, France fought a British-led Grand Alliance in a series of brutal battles such as Blenheim and Ramil, but equally important events were happening back in England, as two enormously important pieces of legislation went through Parliament. First, the Act of Settlement in 1701, which banned Catholics from assuming the crown, and then the Electress of Hanover as the heir of Queen Anne. This was designed, in large part, to prevent James or his descendants from ever taking the throne. The next was the Act of Union in 1707, which unified England and Scotland as one nation, the Kingdom of Great Britain. This all occurred for complicated reasons that I won't go into, although securing a Protestant succession was an important part. But the key thing for us is that Union was far from being universally popular in Scotland, and so the cause of Jacobitism became linked, unified if you will, with the cause of Scottish independence. Mary was determined to strike now, while the iron was hot. By now James was over 18, and so her role as regent had ended, but she was still very close to her son, and they worked together as a team to plan an invasion of Scotland in 1708. Mary's main role in this was diplomatic, to get Louis XIV not only to bank the project, but fully support it with troops, equipment, and a fleet to get it all across the Channel. This was a bit of a long shot, and the French knew it. But the situation in Flanders was getting desperate, as the Grand Alliance won victory after victory. Mary's constant refrain was that, with a modest quantity of men and supplies, her son could open up a new front in the war and split the new British kingdom in two. Louis was deeply sceptical of the project, but was talked into providing 6,000 men and a fleet of 30 ships to sail up to the Firth of Forth, where they could hopefully catch the British garrison at Edinburgh with their trousers down. James travelled from Saint-Germain to Dunkirk, where the fleet was waiting, but the French admiral was looking for any excuse to cancel the project. When James came down with the measles shortly before embarking, the admiral wrote to Versailles and persuaded Louis to cancel the whole thing. That is, until Mary came for an audience with Louis and sweet-talked him into revoking the cancellation. She really was a very skilled diplomat, and her great relationship with Louis XIV was so important in keeping the Jacobite flame burning in its darkest days. Unfortunately for her and the Jacobites, the whole thing turned into a complete fiasco. The delay in leaving Dunkirk gave the British authorities ample time to arrest any conspirators in Scotland, meaning that the invasion force had no safe harbour in which to land. After floating out in the Firth for a little while, James's fleet was chased off, 
and forced to retreat back to Dunkirk without ever setting foot on British soil. It was utterly humiliating. Mary never gave up, though, and continued to impress on Louis the merits of opening up another front in the war by fomenting civil war in Britain, but to no avail. Her full-throated support of the invasion and its failure had immensely damaged her, and the fact that James had reached his majority meant that her role was diminished. It also did not help that, after a decade of war, the French were looking to cut a deal, one of the conditions of which would have to be a renunciation of Louis' support for James. In the same year, 1711, both of Mary's children caught smallpox. James survived, but Louisa did not. Yet again, Mary had to do something that no parent should ever need to do. Bury one of her children. Louisa was buried next to her father in Paris. The Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, that finally ended the Spanish War of Succession, was disastrous for the Jacobites. Louis recognised the Hanoverian succession to the crown of Great Britain and forced James into exile in the Duchy of Lorraine. Mary was allowed to remain at Saint-Germain, but her position never recovered. Useful Jacobite supporters left her court and instead flocked to James, meaning that she lost a lot of influence. But the hangers-on and the chances remained, meaning the drain on her finances never ceased. She desperately missed her son and spent a lot of time in melancholic prayer at Shiloh. Things got so bad that one of her friends admonished the nuns there, saying that, quote, The Queen spent too much time in prayer. It was killing her. She was, though, still a force to be reckoned with at Versailles, and managed to play a role in one last Jacobite invasion, the Rising of 1715. She got Louis to write to his grandson, the new King of Spain, to get his support, and also got the Pope to give it his blessing. To help raise money for the invasion, she reportedly sold all but two pieces of her jewellery. This invasion was initially far more successful than the last, as Scottish rebels had already risen up and taken much of the north of the country, but James's allies were eventually defeated in 1716, forcing him to flee back to France. By now, Louis XIV was dead, and his successor, Louis XV, was far less disposed to aid the Jacobite cause. But Mary never ceased to advocate for her son and support any attempt to foment rebellion in Britain. She even tried to get the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, on board, who, quote, seemed touched by her state and that of King James. He gave her his support, for it was worth, though he never did send any troops. She also concerned herself with that great preoccupation of mothers, her son's marriage. This would be James's best chance of getting the backing of a foreign power for an invasion, and so she threw herself into the task. There were a ton of ladies considered, too many for me to relate to you, but none of them seemed to stick. James, unfortunately, was a bit of a hard sell. James II's first wife, Anne Hyde, had died of breast cancer, and so when in 1700 Mary had gone to him after having found a lump in her breast, he had feared the worst. She fell ill, but then recovered. She fell seriously ill again in 1717. Matters were heard for her, but it was felt by many that this too would end up being a false alarm. Again, she did recover, so when she became sick again the following year, after taking one of her regular chips to Shiloh, people thought nothing of it. Her condition, though, worsened very quickly, and very soon after, she was dead. She was buried at Shiloh, intended to be a temporary measure until her remains could be moved, along with that of her husband, to Westminster Abbey, after the inevitable triumph of Jacobitism. But of course, it was not to be. Indeed, like her father, her mortal remains would not survive the French Revolution. Her son would never be King of Great Britain, and nor would any of his descendants. When she died, she was still considered by Jacobites to be the Queen, but the great powers of Europe recognised a different one, a regnant queen, 
her stepdaughter, Queen Anne. But she was remembered fondly by a lot of people. Louis XIV's former wife, the Marquise of Maintenon, and Mary's friend, wrote that, quote, I wept all yesterday morning. The good and pious Queen of England died at seven o'clock yesterday morning at Saint-Germain. There is no doubt that she will go to heaven. She kept not a penny to herself and gave everything she had to the poor. She supplied whole families with a means of living and never had an evil thought about anything whatsoever. She should be regarded as a saint. The French diarist, the Duke of Saint-Simon, agreed with her. Quote, the life and death of this Queen of England are comparable with those of the greatest saints. Her life since she came to France at the end of 1688 had been but a series of misfortunes. With much sensitivity, great spirit and a natural haughtiness which she learned to control, she had the noblest air in the world, the most imposing, majestic, gentle and modest. Her death was as holy as her life. In many ways, Mary of Modena was nothing special. She was a woman married to produce a son, which she did. She did her duty in supporting her husband, protecting her children, and used her influence when required to do so. Her life was a constant struggle, but look back at the lives of the queens of England that we've already seen. How many of them have had it easy? The Stuart queens have a bit of a reputation. Starting with Queen Mary I of Scots and then running through Anne of Denmark, Henrietta Maria, Catherine of Braganza, and now Mary of Modena, historians have tended to use one label for them. Tragic. One of them was executed, two were forced to flee their kingdoms after their husbands were forced out by revolution, all were Catholics in kingdoms that were turning ever more virulently Protestant, almost all had problems one way or another with giving birth, and all were on the receiving ends of plots that sought to have them removed or even killed. Mary seems to fit into that crowd quite well, and so she has often been looked at in monotone, if she's noticed at all. Indeed, other than the question of whether she gave birth to James Francis Stuart or not, she's often barely mentioned. One of the frustrating things when researching this miniseries on Mary, other than the fact that everyone is either called James, Mary or Anne, is how out of date the sources are. There hasn't been a good biography of Mary since 1962, and histories of the period tend to give her short shrift. There are so many aspects of her life that I would have loved to have included. Her relationships with courtiers, especially in France being a big one, but there just isn't the research out there. It's incredibly frustrating. But what we do have is a woman who never wants to be queen, but used her intelligence and charm to adapt to life at the English and French courts, and managed to keep the flame of Jacobitism alive despite the bungling of her husband. Indeed, historian Andrew Barclay states that marrying Mary was one of the best decisions James ever made. She wasn't perfect, but she was a highly effective political operator, a clever diplomat, and a loving mother and wife. That is what I remember her for, in any case. So that, ladies and gents, is that. Our last queen, done. Like I said, I'll be back in the new year with an episode looking back over the Tudor and Stuart queens. But in the meantime, I hope you have a very happy Christmas.
subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 